How are you all going? You doing well? Yeah, so good. Hey, um, what I want to do is we're into uh, round three of a nine-round fight, it feels like, uh, into this teaching series called Formed, where we're thinking about what does it mean to become uh, Jesus-like people. And really what we're doing here is we're thinking about the different terrain that discipleship takes. So often when we think about discipleship, or in the church where um, I grew up, and if you grew up in the church, um, it's uh, absolutely wonderful. Um, But often we don't really get given much of a map of actually the journey of discipleship. Usually it has two main points to it. It has a beginning point when you become a Christian or you become aware of God's presence and you step into that. And then there is this uh, end point called death where you fall off the conveyor belt and, uh, you know, be with God. So, but the lived experience is rather quite uh, different uh, from that um, because the assumption can be when you've only got two points, there'll be some kind of like everything's just up and to the right. It's not a political statement. It's a sense of actually, you know, journey and things going very, very well. Um, but in fact, what we have, can we flick this up? Um, what we've kind of uh, discovered and discovered through the years is in fact uh, the journey, the spiritual journey takes um, actually a number of different stages. And what's important about this, what's super helpful about this, is that we recognize there's a real shape to um, our um, spiritual formation. And you know, there's different stages, God does different things at different times. And what's good about this is that we can think about, well, what stage am I at? Where am I on this? And you know, kind of generally speaking, and we can anticipate that, but also think about, hey, where am I stuck? Everyone gets stuck, okay? If you get stuck in your spiritual journey, welcome to club humanity. We all get stuck. The idea is to become unstuck, right, and move uh, through into what God has for us. You know, Jesus always calls us out of the shallows and into the deep, and there's different kinds of work happens at different stages of our life. And so generally speaking, what we we talked about last week was how this works out in the two halves of our life. In the first half of our life, um, the real challenges, in the words of uh, Ronald Rulheiser, our favorite Catholic um, of the day, um, is basically the challenge to get our life together. In the second half of our life um, is, oh, can we flick to the, yep, there we go, let's go to the second one. The second half is all about actually the struggle to give our life away. So there's two, kind of these two different, um, kind of, I don't know, distinct periods. And usually you hit into the second half, um, somewhere around, you know, late 30s, early 40s. Anyone in that category? No one. No one wants to put up their hand, right? I can tell from here how many people are over 40, all right? It's pretty obvious. You all all look so charming. Um, Today, what I want to do is have a think about... um, you know, the importance of our, having our identity located into, uh, in the person of Jesus. We, we know, what does our identity rest on? And what's super important about that is how that feeds into the idea of calling or our uh, particular personality with all the strengths and weaknesses that come with that. And that's because when you think about it, this journey, this formation journey, is actually about the transformation of the self right? We're thinking about how do ourselves become like Jesus, right? So this is about the transformation of the self. So what's important about this is we need to understand ourselves, and that's a very much a part of 
um, this process and this part of this journey. So what I want to quickly do now is kick into this, and I want to read a really kind of famous passage from Matthew's Gospel. We're all good to go? Okay, buckle up. Here we go. So this is at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and uh, Matthew's Gospel says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And then Jesus had, sorry, and when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice came from heaven And a voice came from heaven and said, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Now, I've got a really simple question to ask you this morning. I know we normally get stuck in the Greek and the Hebrew at this point, but this one's a really simple question. Where did Jesus get his identity from? Where did Jesus get his identity from? Yeah, from God, from heaven, right? So here's another really simple question for you. Uh, Where should we get our identity from? Yeah, from heaven, right? Not from earth. Usually the cases for us, um, you know, today is we actually don't usually find our identity given to us from God. We usually just kind of construct it out of the scraps and the bits and pieces that we pick up from somewhere closer to home, our family of origin, our early experiences um, from school, or even just kind of the cultural atmosphere that we breathe uh, every day. We... um, we live in what the Korean philosopher Bung Chul Han calls the Achievement Society. Who's reading Korean philosophy, by the way? It's such a great addition to the diet, you know. Get that down you. Um, but he's got this really great book um, on, called The Burnout Society, and he kind of talks about how Western culture is framed by this thing called um, a kind of a, an achievement culture or achievement society. And he um, kind of describes um, late moderns as entrepreneurs of the self. Entrepreneurs of the self, you know, I am this job, I am um, my possessions, I am my sexuality, I am what I wear, I am the university degrees that I've got on the wall, I am this business owner, I am this role in this organization, I am this role in my family, or, you know, you fill in the blank. I am this part of this friendship group, I am this political persuasion, I am my Instagram feed. You know, we become curators of our own life. And look, most of these things are fine and good, The big question is, are these categories large enough containers to hold the ache of the human heart for a purposeful life? Are these things that are true, these things might be true about you, but are these the truest things about you? Does that make sense? Are these the foundational truths uh, that hold your life? Now, to be human is to desire. That's absolutely true. Be that for intimacy or the experience of good food or, you know, progression in life in terms of education or job, uh, career, sports, a sense of popularity. You know, um, many of us don't really transition past, you know, that feeling you have at school, like, 
oh my gosh, am I okay? Will these people like me? You know, I want to be a part of the kind of, maybe I don't want to be a part of the in crowd, but I don't want to be a part of the out crowd either. You know, we always kind of have that sense of anxiety of, am I going to be um, okay here? And, you know, you kind of sometimes, I don't know if you ever feel this, where you walk into a room, whether it's of colleagues or strangers, and there's this funny pressure starts to build up in your life to be slightly cooler than you actually are, or slightly more successful than you actually are, or actually slightly more red than you are. Um, now, there's just this slight pressure, isn't there, just to be something slightly better than you are. And it's kind of like this airbrush version of uh, yourself. And that says, you know, there's an app for that now. You know, Visco, it's really great. Takes years off your life. Your Facebook pro- profile will never look uh, any better. But you know, give it a go, Visco. It's a good time. Now, there's nothing new about this in terms of the human condition. It's just that it gets amplified and it kind of made larger because of the social media climate that we live in. But look, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there's going to be always someone more successful than you. There's always going to be someone more, you know, better looking than you. There's always going to be someone more well-read with you than you. And there's always going to be someone cooler than you, right? I got, as soon as I got ordained, I knew this would be the case. <laughs> you know, this is just comes with the territory, right? It's the only job I could get. But, um, you know, coolness left the time that, you know, you got ordained. It's just part of the deal. Um, but one of the key tasks is that we find our identity in something much larger than this. Because, you know, when our identity is tied to some quite big things, you know, our sense of self-worth, our sense of happiness, our sense of, you know, really destiny in our lives. And so when that all rests on the foundation of our performance, you know, what we notice is, in fact, that can be all taken away in a moment. That can be phased out in a second, right? You could lose your job. You could get unwell and not be able to participate in work. You might... um, I don't know, you, you might find yourself, just imagine this, you might find yourself in the middle of a global pandemic. I mean, I know that's a crazy idea. And then it's kind of lots of stuff becomes really insecure. And when, it's, when our identity rests on our performance, this kind of natural anxiety builds up because we know how precarious it is. We know how fragile uh, that whole situation is. And so one of the most important things uh, to do in this stage of, of apprenticeship is actually have our identity located in heaven, not constructed from earth. Now, Paul, uh, in the book of Ephesians, he kind of gets right into this. And this, I'm going to read a, quite a long passage, but just allow this to kind of wash over you um, as I read this to you. Listen to way, how Paul uh, goes about this. So Paul, writing to the, uh, the church in Ephesus, uh, says this, uh, how blessed is God, and what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundation, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. 
because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we're a free people, free of penalties and punishment, chalked up by all our misdeeds. And not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. It's in Christ that you once heard the truth and believed it, this message, this message of your salvation, found yourself home free, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. This signet from God is the first installment of what's coming, a reminder that we'll get everything God has planned for us, a praising and glorious life. I mean, Paul has just got so much to say here, and it just, he can't contain it. It just bursts out of him. And this in the Greek is just one long, ungrammatically marked sentence, right? This is just one long sentence in Greek. So for those of you who are dyslexic, bring the party. You know, Paul's terrible with grammar too. You know, there's life for you uh, yet. But can you get a sense of what Paul is saying here, where our identity is located? It's actually given to us. It's actually located in the person of Jesus. And the key point here is that when we become a follower of Jesus and uh, kind of identify with the person of Jesus, that's what it means by saying we're in Christ, what God sees as being true of Jesus, he sees as being true of you. What God sees as being true of Jesus, he also sees as being true of you. Think about this, acceptance, significance, safety, authority, destiny, holiness, delight, freedom, can you see how this moves completely different in a different direction from the performance culture? You know, in a performance culture, you have to generate all that for yourselves. Instead of when you identify with Jesus, this is kind of given to you. This is part of who you are. So the question is, I mean, well, the point that Paul is trying to make is this quite simple but profound one. Our identity is not located in the past. We're not our history. Our identity neither is located or for us to construct in the present. This is called the imminent frame. It's not for us either. Actually, identity, our identity, is in what we are becoming, in who we are becoming. That's where our identity lies. And what that means is that doesn't mean that God doesn't take what, you know, our current situation, just kind of like, oh, that doesn't matter because you're becoming X, Y, and Z. God takes that seriously. Our behaviors and our patterns do matter deeply, but the question is, are they the most foundational things about who you are? Is that, is that the truest thing that God or you could say about yourself? And the answer is no. The truest thing, the most solid thing that's actually happening to you is who you are becoming in the person of Christ, who you're becoming in the person of Christ. That's the truest thing um, about us. 
And Paul, there's this, in this letter that he writes to the Ephesians, you know, there's five, only five chapters in it. And Paul spends the first three locking down our identity to kind of locate us in this stuff. And then only after that does he talk about some things for us to do. So the first imperative comes in 4 verse 1. And the point that Paul is making is what we do flows naturally out of from who we are, right? What we do flows naturally from who we are. And Paul says this, he says, therefore, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Jesus' identity was determined by his calling, right? The voice of God. Can you see what Ephesians is saying as well? Your identity is also determined and shaped by God's calling, you know, the voice of God. It's super important that we're able to locate who we are and what God is doing in the world. And you know what might be quite surprising about this is that the more and more you become like Jesus, the more and more you actually allow God's voice to determine the shape of your life. The most interesting thing about that is you don't become clones. You don't just become like the, what to sound like and look like everyone else who's you know, drunk the Kool-Aid. You actually become more and more yourself. You become the, the person you have um, been called to be. You become more and more yourself the more and more you actually participate and have your identity shaped by God. And, you know, so in Ephesians, Paul makes this point and brings us out here. He says, therefore, he's talking about the different ways that people who are part of the family of God and have their identity located in Christ actually are gifted in different kinds of ways for the benefit of the church. And he says, um, oh, actually, can we... Oh, yeah, this one here. So the gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some would be prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, Paul's not writing an exhaustive list here. The point that Paul is trying to make is to be able to recognize the different gifts and strengths that other people have, but also in the same breath to realize that we are gifted. We have different strengths in different kinds of places uh, as, as well. And so part of the, um, so Paul is trying to make a direct link between having our identity in Christ and how that gets borne out in the different gifts and strengths um, that we have. Now, I don't have time to unpack all that, that kind of all that this means, but I want to make three really quick points. And here's the first one. Firstly, in Paul making a direct link between following Jesus, having our identity in Christ, and how that gets borne out in our unique gifts and self and ourselves, part of that process is for us, for you, to discover the different ways that you've been gifted, the different strengths and weaknesses that you have, and to actually lean into that, to discover who you are as a primary element in our discipleship to Jesus. Have a look at this from Pete Scazzaro. He says this, the vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. We unconsciously live someone else's life, or at least someone else's expectations for us. This does violence to ourselves, our relationship with God, and ultimately to others. Who you are and who you're becoming is an essential, is a key part 
of your discipleship to Jesus. You know, becoming self-aware and being participating in the unfolding of yourself is actually is a, is an important element of getting to know God, and in turn becomes an important element in getting to know yourself. And this might seem like a super obvious point to make, but it's actually only through ourselves that we encounter God, right? If you think about that for a second, how else are you going to encounter God? You personally are going to encounter God through who you are, yourself, right? That makes sense. So actually understanding who you are and how you're created to be is an important part of getting to know who God is. These two things are actually combined together. And I know that seems like a bit of like self-help for snowflakes, but actually this is a very old idea. Our namesake, St. Augustine of Hippo, North African rock star, says this, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? And then he turns that into a prayer, saying this, on the next part, <laughs> grant that I may know myself, that I may know thee. We only understand God through ourselves. We meet God through ourselves. Getting to know who you are is an important way in which we encounter God. Again, no snowflake self-help guy. Um, John Calvin wrote this a huge book. Huge, it's called uh, Inst- uh, Institutes for Christian Religion. Um, And on page one, he says this, Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. Understanding who you are, who God has created you to be, is an important and absolutely essential component in understanding who God is. Understanding God and understanding ourselves, as you can see here, actually goes hand in hand. My third point is this. In as much as we uh, participate with God in the world, in as much as we participate in God's unfolding of our own lives, is that we participate in that as the self that you already are, right? You're not doing this through any other self, right? God reaches out through you into the world through the self that you already are, and you participate with the Spirit through the self that you already are also. So actually understanding who you are and how you're created to be. You know, sure, there's always, you know, brokenness, brokenness mixed in with the beauty, right? That's absolutely true. And the imperative in the Bible is saying to understand your strengths, understand who you are, and grow and mature in that. But God, this is, you know, why did God create you the way that you are? That's a good question to ask yourself. It's so that he can work through that kind of person into the world. Um, The great saint uh, Catherine of Siena said this, when we are who we're called to be, we will set 
the world ablaze. So understanding yourself, who you are, your strengths and weaknesses is a key way through which God uh, works in the world. Now, um, I'm, um, you know, I might as well keep going butchering the English language as we... Uh, as we've kind of done here, but the, the point that kind of we, I'm trying to get to here is that in a nutshell, what I'm saying is, you know, the formation journey of us becoming Jesus-like is also a formation journey of you becoming you-like. Does that make sense? It's, these things go hand in hand uh, together. Thomas Merton um, said it like this, for me to be a saint, means to be myself. Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is, in fact, the problem of finding out who I am and of discovering my true self. God wants you to be your true self. God created you amazingly, gifted you absolutely wonderfully. Our job and part of the key role in our discipleship to Jesus is discovering what that is, and learning to participate in the flow of that. Now, I've got to say, I'm pretty late to the self-awareness journey. You know, being self-aware is so important. And look, I found a few things that have been really helpful in this regard. And I found um, spiritual direction really great. Um, and we've got, some, got a list of spiritual directions. If you ever wanted to jump in and grab some spiritual direction, let us know. But also I found the Enneagram a super helpful way of discovering kind of who, you, who I am or my quirks and like bits and pieces I need to work on. But also there's another tool that I found super helpful and it's called uh, Strength Finders. Has anyone heard of that? Anyone done that? Oh man, I see that hand. So good. So what I want to do is land today and I want to invite a good friend of um, ours, at St. Augustine's, uh, Raywin Mornison, to come up and share a little bit about Strength Finders because it is a super great tool for discovering all the different ways that we've been, you know, been gifted and kind of, and how we can grow with that. Please welcome Raywin. All right, believe it or not, I better get my iPad for this. Raywin, thank you. <laughs> that was a bit longer introduction than I needed to, I think, to the idea of strengths, but I couldn't help myself. It was so, <laughs> hey, um, so great to have you here, and thank you so much for all the work you do uh, in the area of strengths and strength finders, and you know, I've really been encouraged in my own life, and it's been super helpful um, uh, and all of that. But I just want to ask right at the top, you know, you've been a strengths coach for... A number of years, and every time we talk about strengths, you know, you come alive. It's obviously a real passion of yours. But can you just, in a real succinct way, give us an overview of what strengths is all about? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Newt. And uh, I really enjoyed my time coaching with you and Sarah and the team. And in that coaching, you guys experiencing those sort of aha moments. It was mm. really cool. So let's just explain the tool really quickly. Um, strengths was researched at Gallup University uh, for 40 years. And it was by Donald Clifton, and um, it's now actually called Clifton Strengths. And uh, he was a committed Christian. And when he got the tool, he said, I don't just want this for 
you know, the bigger business world. I really want it for church and for leadership and education. So they came up with 34 themes of how we relate, think, influence, and execute. So the online assessment that you do comes up with your top talents and strengths, and you become aware of everything that Newt's just been talking about, about how uniquely you're designed, and also how you can grow these strengths. And you're more likely to enjoy your work in your life, mm. and other people will sense that you're in your sweet spot when you're doing more of what you were created to do. It's kind of nature-nurture, or in other words, it's a combination of how we're genetically wired and the environment that we're brought up in. And since it was released, over 25 million people have completed the assessment in many nations and languages, and you can get your top five or your top 34 report. And so essentially, it's about growing your strengths and managing your weakness. And these are the the 34 strengths up here, so you kind of get an idea of what it's like. So it's really a positive psychology tool. Super good. I'm just trying to think which ones are mine up there. Um, mm. Yeah, probably the one in the middle. Yeah, I, made it, I made it really big <laughs> just for you. Yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, when was the kind of, when, you know, obviously you've participated in this and you've done a lot of... Um, coaching, etc. But when was the moment for you that you felt like, oh my gosh, this is a real thing. This is going to be really helpful. When was that moment that really sure. kind of had, a, had an impact for you as yeah. you um, got into doing strength? Yeah. So uh, 14 years ago, I did the assessment and I just got so impacted by it. I went and trained in the US to become a coach and I just found that it unlocked something inside of me to help me really understand myself and also help me navigate the people around me. So I'm going to give you two examples um, of what Newt's just said. Mm. I've always been a get it done kind of a girl and when I got my results I kind of went oh where are they? And uh, they were in what's called my second set, my six to ten strengths but in my top five um, there were more of the how I influence and relationship strengths and uh, my top strength is empathy and with a really close mm. connectedness and um, it shouldn't have really surprised me because it's closely related to my faith journey um, and I'll give you an example when I was eight years old um, my dad left our family with my mum's best friend and I didn't see him again until I was 16 years old. And uh, I believe my empathy was developed at this time and at a really young age where I really had to navigate um, the tricky emotions of my mom and my family. Um, empathy was a really big reason as to why I started following Jesus and, uh, at 13 years of age. And I was the first Christian in my family in the generations. And I really needed God, and he helped me find and form my identity. So after losing that father figure in my life, it was really important. So um, I found people came towards me kind of looking for care and for advice and um, and support, and knowing this was my number one strength, I really pushed into it. I learned to grow it, and learned to grow some emotional intelligence, and learn some coaching skills. And I find I use that empathy strength all the time when I'm connecting with God and people. And I feel like I use it every day, whether it's in my workplace, or whether it's in my church community, because I notice emotion and feelings really mm. easily. 
Um, another really key time, because it wasn't just about me, it was about me and Wayne, um, and it really impacted our relationship. Um, after years of ministry, um, Wayne decided to become a strengths coach and start a music business and a wedding business, and life just got really busy as we kind of reinvented ourselves. And Wayne's got great strengths. He's got achiever. He didn't make that one big. <laughs> he's the hard worker and the finisher. Um, he's got focus, so he can really get in and do the detail. And he's got maximizer, so he likes to take anything he's doing and from good and make it really great. So it was really easy to lose him. Um, I have woo, and um, strengths can become a need, so woos need wooing. You can see where this is going, right? Because mm. um, we lost each other in this space, and it caused a bit of tension. And uh, when we sat, sat with our strengths, we found a really good way to get through it. Um, Ray, Wayne realised he could go to workspace at home and forget time. And, um, for example, I'd often tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, you've been there for an hour. It was only meant to be 10 minutes. Mm. And um, <laughs> he's saying sorry to me now. But, um, but I realised, you know, in a strengths way, that I needed his focusing and achieving to do the details so the new projects that we were in were successful. So we found a way to do this without tension. And by simply understanding in a positive way how we work together. And I really believe that strengths is a positive way to mm. scaffold relationship issues. And you can impact these conversations in a, in a marriage, in a relationship, when you start with talking about what's right mm. with you. So Wayne began to appreciate my empathy and that I could be emotionally deep, could encourage people. Um, how I picked up when people were down, and we realised that as a strength together um, and just appreciated that and started really caring for people and wanting to connect them to God. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why we love running a small group mm. at St. Orgies, right? Mm. It's because of that. That's so, fantastic. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, obviously this kind of part of like working with a team is kind of understanding you know, your own strengths and um, understanding the strengths of... Uh, your colleagues, um, but how have you, what's been, what's been the real goal for you in terms of like coaching teams or, um, yeah, either in the corporate environment or in the, in the not-for-profit, I mean, what's, how have you found that, you know, play out? Sure. So Gallup did some research and they found that people who focus on their strengths are three times likely to report having a better quality of life or six times more likely to be engaged in their jobs. So working with a team, this yeah. tool is so incredibly powerful and because um, people get really engaged. Um, I like to work with teams because I like people to um, understand each other and how they can work together. And I also get them to look at what strengths they can borrow from each other. And those conversations are really helpful, whatever team you're in, whether it's a marriage or a work team. So figuring out who you are and how you're placed in a, in a team actually brings vibrancy because you're bringing you to the team. Mm. Um, when coaching teams, I work on things like how do you get the best of each person and what you can count on people to bring and what they're willing to kind of share with each other. Um, the team that I lead at the Make-A-Wish Foundation, um, they found this invaluable. And what I've noticed is it's helping us um, with our collaboration and our creativity. 
because um, people are understanding each other and how to borrow each other's strengths. And it's great just watching them do this. And I don't know, but I'm noticing that our children's wishes because of this are just becoming more impactful. So our mission feels sort of so much better because of it. Amazing. Yeah. Hey, I want to come into land with um, uh, asking this question. Um, we kind of, big, a big part of where we've been going has been thinking about the way that um, who we are impacts our relationship with God and is very much a part of the discipleship journey. Um, in strengths coaching and maybe even for your own self, how have you found this journey of kind of discovering who you are, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, how have you found that kind of play out in your, your relationship with God? Um, so I think identity and uniqueness are just so closely related, and this is a really interesting thing. The chances of someone having the same top five strengths as you is one in 278,000, which is pretty unique, right? Mm. But the chance of someone having the same top five as you in order, one to five, is one in 33.3 million. Mm. So when I'm speaking mm. to people about them and God and their connection, their uniqueness is just profound. And um, I think of that scripture in Psalm 137, 139, verse 14. And it says, Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, and how well I know it. And you think about David when he wrote this. I mean, he was appreciating his complexity. Mm. And it just caused him to be thankful to God. So, um, so just being self-aware, I think, brings uniqueness to life in all of us, and uh, I coached a girl one day, and it was kind of interesting, because she was struggling with her connection to God, and she said her faith was getting really dry, and she was trying to have the, you know, do the right thing every day, put some discipline in, so every day she was trying to have a quiet time, and it just wasn't working for her, so in the coaching session, I said to her, you know, one of your strengths is connectedness, so this is just a bit dry, so I said, why don't you next time you meet with God, go and sit under a tree, and, and pray and talk with God under a tree. Or go and try prayer walking and get out into nature, you know. And next time I saw her, she said it just made the biggest difference to her relationship with God because she connects to God through nature, and that's how she found God, and it just rejuvenated her, her relationship with God. So, yeah, the knowledge of self is important, but in the basis of how God's made us, it's so important. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. Let's give her a hand of... Thank you so much.